Father God, we do praise you and thank you. Open with me, please, if you will, to tonight's psalm. We're looking at Psalm 102. Psalm 102. Prayer for an afflicted man for mercy on himself and on Zion. Notice he's praying both for himself and for Zion. That is interesting in itself, and we'll comment shortly. A prayer of the afflicted when he is faint and pours out his complaint before the Lord. There's another psalm that's similar. Eshpoch, eshpoch, eshpoch lefanav sichi. I'll pour out my complaint before the Lord. This is related to that, but this is considered to be also a penitential psalm. Now, there are a few things that we should point out concerning this psalm. In the Septuagint and in the Latin Vulgate, copied from the Septuagint, it's Psalm 101, not 102. It's Psalm 101. It's 102 in the Hebrew canon. It's 101 in the, in, in the Vulgate and in the Septuagint. Um, and in the liturgy of, of, of Judaism to this day, it's the psalm that's used when you pray for the pregnancy of, of an infertile woman, of somebody desiring motherhood, but who's battling medical infertility. And this is the prayer that's used liturgically to pray, pray for child conception and a successful pregnancy. Uh, this is considered a deep form of affliction in Judaism for women to be childless. Um, so too, it is a prayer for healing, used for healing in Judaism. So let a pay to heal, it's a orafuah, it's a pr prayer, of, it's used as a prayer of healing, but it's also used as an appeal to God for conceiving a baby. Um, in the Vulgate, it, and then also in Judaism, it's a prayer of a community under some kind of threat or affliction, of a community under threat or affliction. That is how it's used in Judaism to this day. In Christianity, it's a very, well, Christendom, let's say, it is a very significant psalm in the Vulgate, certainly in the Roman Catholic tradition. I remember I learned this in Latin as a little boy, the, the first verse is, Hear my prayer, O Lord, and let my and let my cry for help come to thee. Domine exordi, uh, Domine exordi of uh, Orionem meum. That's it. Domine exordi Orionem meum et clamor meas antevenient. Et clamor meas antevenient. Let my cry for help come to you. Let my cry for help come to you. Clamor meas. But in the Vulgate text of the Vulgate, it's in bold print with big letters. It's highlighted, and it's seen as very significant liturgically. Uh, this is quite a song, but we are going to look at it the way we always do. We're going to look at it from the point of view of Messiah and prophecy. So let's read this psalm first of all. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Domine exaldi orationem et meum. And let my cry come to thee. Do not hide thy face from me. 
in the day of my distress. Incline my ear to me. And the day when I call, answer me quickly. To do with desperation. For my days have been consumed in smoke and my bones have been scorched like a hearth. My heart has been smitten like grass and has withered away. Indeed, I forgot to eat my bread because of the fondness of my groaning or the loudness of my groaning, my bones cling to my flesh. I resemble a pelican of the wilderness. I have become like an owl of the waste places. I lie awake. I have become like a lonely bird on a housetop. My enemies have reproached me all the day long. All day long, those who deride me have used my name as a curse, for I have eaten ashes like bread and mingled my drink with weeping because of thine indignation and my wrath, for thou hast lifted me up and cast me away. My days are like a lengthened shadow, and I shall wither away like grass. But thou, O Lord, dost abide forever, and thy name to all generations. Thou wilt arise and have compassion on Zion, for it is time to be gracious to her, for the appointed time has come. Surely thy servants find pleasure in her stones and feel pity for her dust. So the nations, that is the Gentile nations, will fear the name of the Lord and all the kings of the earth thy glory. For the Lord has built up Zion. He's appeared in his glory. He has regarded the prayer of the destitute and has not despised their prayer. This will be written for the generation to come that a people yet to be created, notice that, may praise the Lord. For he looked down from his holy height, from heaven, and the earth grazed upon the earth to hear the groanings of the prisoner and to set free those who were doomed to death, that men may tell of the name of the Lord in Zion and his praise in Jerusalem, when the peoples are gathered together and the kingdoms to serve the Lord. That's prophetic in verse 22. He has weakened my strength in the way he has shortened my days. I say, oh my God, do not take me away in the midst of my days. Thy years are throughout all generations. Now notice how conspicuously akin that verse is to the prayer of desperation of King Hezekiah. Don't cut me off in the middle of my days. It's almost the same. Of all thou found the earth and the heavens are the work of thy hands. Even they will perish, but thou dost endure. And all of them will wear out like a garment, like clothing that will change them, and they will be changed. Take particular note of verse 26 also. But thou art the same, and thy years will not come to an end. The children of thy servants will continue, and their descendants will be established before thee. the prayer of desperation of the afflicted. Now, why is it a personal prayer of somebody under affliction and a state of desperation, yet it's united in the same Psalm with beseeching God about Zion, about Zion? Turn, why these two things that seem different? Well, we understand it from a messianic and a prophetic perspective. Turn with me, please to Matthew chapter 23. 
Verse 37, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together, the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you, from now on, you shall not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. As you know, Baruch Haba B'Shem Adonai, in the Vulgate, not that it matters, in the Vulgate, it's uh, Benedictum Quiveni and Nomine Dominum. Benedictum Quiveni and Nomine Dominum. Again, the Vulgate puts a lot of emphasis on this stuff. Well, let's understand it. Jesus, before the Olivet Discourse, and Matthew's version, and before the Passion narrative formally commences, so he's looking down the throat of his own crucifixion and rejection and crucifixion. He's looking straight down the throat of it. And it's close to Passover. And it is interesting that there are three things that Jesus speaks about consecutively and concisely together, technically four. The first is the destruction of Jerusalem. When the Messiah is rejected, Jesus says his rejection as Messiah is in harmony with the rejection of the prophets. And Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. The temple would be left desolate. The prophecies of Daniel chapter 9 on the destruction of the temple. He unites the events of 70 AD. Now Luke does it, records it differently. Luke doesn't talk about Matthew 23 in the same way. He talks about it, but not in the same way or the same location. Luke has Jesus talking about the destruction within the discourse itself. Jerusalem will be trampled down by the feet of the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles is completed. Luke talks about the coming destruction and restoration of Jerusalem within the discourse because he's writing First of all, he's writing from history from a Greek perspective. He's writing it chronologically uh, as opposed to thematically. The Hebrews emphasized he uh, history thematically. The Greeks emphasized it chronologically. Um, so Luke is writing it from a perspective that would appeal or apply to both Jews and non-Jews. Matthew is writing to Jews. So Luke puts the prophecies about Jerusalem, he quotes Jesus saying it within the Olivet Discourse. Matthew leaves that bit out within the discourse and puts it on the Mount of Olives or puts it in Matthew 23 when Jesus is looking at Jerusalem, coming down and going into the temple and, and saying, it's going to, you're going to be destroyed. This is going to be left desolate. In other words, the rejection and destruction of the Messiah goes hand in hand with the consequent rejection and destruction of Jerusalem. One begets the other. This replays what happened in the book of Jeremiah. 
Remember, Jeremiah is a type of Christ who's compared, he's actually called the lamb led to slaughter, just like Jesus. And when Jeremiah was rejected, Jerusalem was destroyed. This is the theme of the book of Lamentations, Jeremiah's other book. So Jesus is very much in the character of Yeremiah Hohanabi, in the character of Jeremiah here. And he's talking about Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you rejected the prophets, that's why you're rejecting me. If, if, if you rejected Isaiah, if you rejected Jeremiah, <laughs> if you rejected Micah, well, you're going to reject me. And the result is going to be destruction. Same as it was in the days of Jeremiah, before the Babylonian captivity. You're going to see it again. The Babylonians destroyed the first temple. The Romans are going to destroy the second. And it happens the same day of the year, as you know. The Shabbat, both, both temples destroyed the same day of the year. Not only that, but Peter identifies Rome as Babylon. So this is a big deal at the Shabbat, roughly the 9th of August. So Jesus is saying, you rejected the prophets and this place got sacked. Well, now you've rejected the Messiah. This place is going to get sacked again. And he weeps over Jerusalem. He weeps over Jerusalem. Now, you have to understand the whole emphasis of the religious system in his day, the thinking of the, at least the devout people, was we've been restored from the Babylonian captivity to the land, but now we're under Roman occupation, and we're waiting for the Messiah to come and restore the throne of David, and they're expecting this. And Jesus is saying, you're going to reject the Messiah, and what happened the last time? when the Babylonians wrecked this joint, is going to be replayed. That's what he's saying. So Jesus, and he does this just before the Passion narrative. So the events of 70 AD, the events of his return, okay, are, and the events of his crucifixion are all linked. Seven, the destruction of Jerusalem, the rejection and crucifixion of the Messiah, the return of the Messiah, and beyond that, what happens then when he sets up the kingdom and Zion's restored? He puts all of these things together sequentially in a very close period of time. It's interesting that he's going to be crucified and he's talking about what's going to happen to Jerusalem. He says, you're going to destroy the temple of my body. This temple is going to be destroyed. I can raise this one up in three days. The other one, well, that's another matter. We deal with this on other teachings. So he's putting together the destruction of Jerusalem, of Zion, that's coming, together with his rejection and the destruction of himself that's coming. And then it talks of his return and what follows it. All of these things are accordioned together. Okay. So in the Psalm 102, we see the same kind of pattern. We see the suffering of Christ prophetically and poetically forecasted. Don't hide your face from me in the day of my distress. My God, incline my ear to me. Answer me quickly, as in, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Oh, my father, let this cup pass from me. Why have you forsaken me? My days have been consumed in smoke. My bones have been scorched like the hearth. My heart's been smitten like grass withered. Now, I've got to be very honest about this. There is some deeper meaning in verse 4 to I forgot to eat my bread. I do not know how that applies to Christ. I only have theories. I am not positive. Jesus ate the Passover on the 14th of Nisan, but earlier in the day. He did not eat the matzah later in the day when other people were eating it. That could be, it, it could link to that, but I'm only thinking out loud. But there is some meaning to that verse that at the present time, I do not fully understand. I only partially understand. Verse 5. Because of the loudness of my groaning, my bones cling to my flesh. Now look at, I resemble a pelican in the wilderness. I've become like an owl in waste places. This kind of destruction of a place saw the ruins as a haunt of jackals or things of that nature. One of the passages of the Old Testament that deals with this is Isaiah chapter 34, where it talks about destruction and judgment. Now, in verse 34, verse 4 of chapter 34 of Isaiah, we obviously have a reference to what happens with the sixth seal just before the rapture. But I only mention this in passing. The hosts of heaven, Hashavaot the Shemaim, will wear away. The sky will be rolled up like a scroll, as in Revelation, and all their hosts will wither away. Now, look, as the leaf withers from the vine, or as one withers, from the fig tree. That is what happens with the sixth seal. But look at verse 11. But the pelican and hedgehog shall possess it. The owl and the raven shall dwell in it. He will stretch out over its line of desolation and the plumb line of emptiness. These animals, pelicans, hedgehogs, uh, th that particular bird, okay, the owl and the raven, these are unkosher birds. They are unclean animals. I would have to refer you back to one of our older teachings that you can get online for free. Um, Kashrut and famine, the typology of the Hebrew dietary laws. The animals that were clean, kosher, were animals that in some way prefigured Christ obviously lamb or goat, as in the goat for the Lord on Yom Kippur, or um, bulls and things like this, the strong dying for the weak, the, the strength of the ox. The animals that were edible were types of Christ. Birds, like a dove, you know, edible. Now, this is a big subject between the terrestrial birds and the birds that are aviary and, and build nests and trees, and the ones that build their nests on, on the earth. It's a whole 
typology to this stuff, I would also refer you to the teaching of the woman in the basket, the woman in the basket uh, from the book of, of Zechariah. But I only mention that relative to this text. Notice the owl, the raven, the pelican, these things. Unclean animals are generally figures of the demonic, figures of the demonic. It becomes a haunt of demons. Look again to Psalm 102. I resemble a pelican in the wilderness. I like an owl. It's the same unclean animals. It's like God has rejected him as something evil. He's rejected him with the evil. And these same evil birds and things like this that are going to haunt Jerusalem after its destruction. And that has happened. The Mosque of Omar is absolutely demonic. The Church of the Holy Sepulcher is not holy. It is demonic. It is necromancy and idolatry. If you've not seen it, you should look at it on the internet. It is unbelievable. It naturally occurs in the marble on the south panel surfaces of the Mosque of Omar, two figures that are absolutely satanic looking. And they are not there by coincidence, I assure you. The builders didn't know what they were doing. I, you know, I'm not a person who's a mystic and I read into things, things that aren't there. It could just be a coincidence or some explanation. But if you've seen those photos or if you've been to Jerusalem and seen those figures on the Mosque of Omar, on the Dome of the Rock, you'll know what I'm talking about. It can't be a coincidence. It's, it's a demonic presence on the Temple Mount. It's a haunt of jackals and owls and pelicans. The Mosque of Aqsa is a haunt of pelicans. It overshadows the steps where Jesus ascended and taught. It's, a, and it's right up at the location of Solomon's portico where Jesus taught his disciples. That's where the Mosque of Omar is. Now it's a haunt of pelicans and owls. It's, it's, it's demonic. You look at the stuff with the Eastern Orthodox churches and oh my Lord, it stuff is demonic. It's creepy. Then you go down to the Kotel and you see the Kabbalists, the Hasidic Jews. They're mystics. They're Gnostics. They're doing things that the Torah specifically condemns. They believe in things like numerology they believe in communication with the dead. They believe in all kinds of things. It's all Babylonian Gnosticism repackaged as a Jewish religion or a Jewish belief system. It's just mysticism. It's mysticism and Gnosticism. It's Kabbalah. It's demonic. You got the demonic under the Kotel. You got the demonic on the Temple Mount. And you got the demonic next door in the, in the, in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. The whole thing is a haunt of demons. I used to live in the old city. 
that whole area, it's a haunt, of, it's demonic. You see with the El Aqsa Brigade, these fanatical Muslims and the, the suicide bombers and things like, it's demonic. It is absolutely demonic. That's what would happen to Jerusalem. And Jesus is treated the same way because he took our sin. God treats him no better. God rejects Zion because Zion rejects him. But now God rejects the Messiah. It was the will of the Lord to smite him. Look what I, I become like a lonely bird on a housetop. My enemies have reproached me all day long. Those who deride me have used my name as a curse. Look with me, please, to Matthew chapter 27. Verse 40, or sorry, verse 39. Those passing by were wagging and hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, you're now going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days? Of course, talking about his body and the resurrection. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. And in the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, the leaders of their religion, were mocking him, saying, he saved others, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him says the robbers had been crucified with him were casting the same insult at him. Well, what is prophesied in the Psalm? My enemies have reproached me. Those who deride me have used my name as a curse. I grew up in a lower middle-class culture on the outskirts of New York City near the Statue of Liberty I was born. I lived in Manhattan, but I lived near the Statue of, Liberty, Statue of Liberty across the river from Manhattan. And it was basically not really working class. Well, some working class, but maybe people, not mainly lower middle class people. Um, and all I heard, unless you were in a church or something, Jesus Christ was a swear word. People would be angry or they'd be fed up at something or they'd want to express some kind of uh, anxiety or some kind of displeasure. And they would say, they would, I don't even like to say it, but you know what they would say. They'd say, Jesus Christ. Oh, Christ. It's just a swear word to them. The one who died in our place and saved us and his name became and is to this day, nothing but a swear word to them. Orthodox Jews use his name as a swear word. They change it from Yeshua to Yeshu, and an acronym for may his name be blotted out. Just a swear word. My enemies, they deride me and have used my name as a curse. You see people using the Lord's name in vain. The name of, you had a comedian in America the week before last. She was making fun of people who didn't like vaccinations for, for the COVID. But then she brought the name of Jesus into it, and she was making fun of Christians. 
And she said, I didn't get it. Jesus must really love me. And she's mocking the faith of Christians and mocking the name of Jesus. And I'm not kidding you. This is not an old woman. This is, this is you know, maybe in her late 30s or something. And all of a sudden, she just conks out on the floor and cracks her head, fractures her skull. Uh, it happened that it was, it was in Arizona. She was giving a show in Arizona near Phoenix. And, and she mocked the one, she banged. There was a Jewish comedian named, oh, he had strange, he had natural strabismus. He had an eye focus disorder. And he, he, he was one of the first ones on British TV to take the name of Jesus in vain, his Messiah. And the guy died right after it. So did an American comedian called Andy Kaufman. He was mocking born again Christians and pretended to be one and all this kind of stuff. And he died. God will not be mocked. People who take his name, the name of his son in vain, they're playing a very dangerous game. His name is not a swear word. But the scripture says that's what it would become. Just the week before last, you, you can watch the clip. This woman, she, she just young and joking and all this stuff and dancing around and bang, she just collapses and cracks her head open. I've eaten ashes like bread and mingled my drink with weeping. Because of thine indignation and thy wrath, for thou hast lifted me up and cast me away. This is happening to him because of the wrath of God. Once again, the reason we will not face the wrath of God, the reason Paul can write, we are not appointed unto wrath. We were destined for wrath. Because of our sin, we merit wrath. But we're not appointed unto wrath because the wrath went on Jesus in our place. Again, that is the gospel. Penal substitution, substitutionary atonement. The people who are denying this are not Christians. The author of the shack is by biblical definition Johnson, he's, he's not, uh, William B. Young, he's not a Christian. Steve Chalk, by scriptural definition, is not a Christian. Those who deny penal substitution, those who deny substitutionary atonement, are not Christian. Because of thine indignation and thy wrath, thou hast lifted me up and cast me away. My days are like a lengthened shadow, and I wither like the grass. Sel. Shadow. Sel. That's quite a thing. These terrible things are happening to him. Being cut short in the middle of his years. My days are consumed. I become like an owl. I become a reproach. And it's because of your wrath. My days are only like a lengthened 
shadow. Now this is something we deal with on our Amos chapter seven and eight teaching, but I need to just briefly refer to it in reference to this Psalm. Remember King Hezekiah, the shadow went back. So his days were lengthened as the king of the Jews. As the king of the Jews, Hezekiah prayed and the shadow went back. God intervened in time. The shadow went back, giving him longer longevity. With Jesus, it's the opposite. The shadow becomes lengthened and his longevity is shortened in verse 11. Now, again, I, I'm sorry, I keep telling you to listen to this, go listen to that. It's on the Amos chapter seven and eight teaching. The Amos chapter seven and eight teaching. Okay. But then it continues. But thou, O Lord, dost abide forever, and my name to all generations. Thou wilt arise and have compassion on Zion. It's time to be gracious to her, for the appointed time has come. He's going to be gracious again to a destroyed Zion. Surely thy servants find pleasure in her stones and feel pity for her dust. Now, in her stones, this obviously in figure relates to 1 Peter 2.5. We are the stones living stones, not made with human hands, okay? Again, we have other teachings explaining the typology of stones. God could raise up Abraham's children out of the stones. If the Jews reject him, God will get uh, Christians. No. So the nations will fear the name of the Lord and all the kings of the earth his glory. For the Lord has built up Zion. He has appeared in his glory. He has regarded the prayer of the destitute and has not despised their prayer. This will be written for the generation to come that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord. Be careful of those. There are people who are excited about the national rebirth of Israel, which does indeed fulfill prophecy, and the reunification of Jerusalem, which does fulfill prophecy. But you've got people in the Jewish branch of the NAR called Tikkun, or the National Apostolic Reformation Deception. There's, a, there's an Israeli Jewish branch called Tikkun. Dan Justin, these Asher, they're all crazy. And they have an overrealized eschatology. They take things from Isaiah and Psalms that talk about the millennium, and they say it's now. It's not now. The Lord has not appeared in his glory. Zechariah tells us he will appear in his glory. But it's not happened. They're just regathered for it to happen. But terrible things are going to happen before then. Just think of when they came back from Babylon in the days of Haggai, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Zechariah. 
They had the fights with Sambalot and the Samaritans. They were surrounded by people who didn't want them there. And it took a long time before the glory of God came. Very long time. Even when the temple was rebuilt, the glory of the second temple never, ever exceeded the first until Jesus entered it as a baby. When the prop, that's when the prophecy was fulfilled that the glory of the second will exceed the first because there was no holy ark in it. Just because they're regathered. Okay, the regathering to Israel and Jerusalem, that fulfills prophecy. But as we see in Ezra, don't get overly excited about it. There's more to come. Not until the Messiah comes. was the restoration from Babylon, and it was hundreds of years later, something that was fulfilled. Well, it's the same now. The Jews are back in the land. They're back in Jerusalem. We should recognize it as a prophetic sign and fulfillment, but it's nothing to be excited about until Christ returns. Be careful of people who have any kind of over-realized eschatology is the term. It doesn't matter if it's the kingdom now, dominionist, restorationist lunatics. It doesn't matter if it's hyper-messianic lunatics. It doesn't matter if it's the international Christian embassy. It doesn't matter who. It's wrong. This prophecy is not fulfilled just because Israel is a nation again. Israel's a nation again shows that this prophecy is going to be fulfilled, but only, only when the Lord has appeared. Oh, verse 16, the Lord has built up Zion. Yeah, it's true. He's caused the Jews to come back. But has he appeared in his glory? Not yet. He's regarded the prayer of the destitute and has not despised their prayer. This will be written for generations to come that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord. A people yet to be created are going to praise the Lord. A people who did not exist at that time. Now, what kind of people did not exist at that time that were going to come into existence by God's hand? And we're going to praise the Lord. Who could that possibly be? Look with me to Isaiah chapter 65, verse 1, please. I permitted myself to be sought by those who did not seek me. I permitted myself to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, hineni, hineni, to a goy, to a nation. Here, Israel is actually called a goy. that did not call on my name. I've spread out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in a way which is not good, following their own thoughts. Judaism is a man-made religion in its present form. Talmudic Judaism. A people continually provoked me to my face. <laughs> they offer sacrifices in gardens and burning incense on bricks. 
There are people already beginning to do this who want to rebuild the temple and they're having sacrifices around the Temple Mount who sit among graves and spend the night in secret places. I'm not making this up. You can go to Tiberius. There's a cemetery where Rabbi Akiva and Rambam are buried. They go there and they engage in necromancy. There's a place in, I think it's Ukraine, every year in the Ukraine, Hasidic Jews from New York, from Antwerp, from Israel, they go to this grave and this rabbi from hundreds of years ago to give good luck. In New York and Queens, in a Jewish cemetery, 24-7, there is a vigil at the grave of Rabbi Menachem Schneerson, the last Lubavitch Chabad rabbi, who they claim is the Messiah, they're waiting for him to raise from the dead. There's a 24-7 vigil at his grave. Exactly what this says. It's a religion of the dead who eats swine's flesh. In Israel, they call it white steak and all this stuff. This goes on. It's all written. It's all written. But God says something different. But this Psalm, this Isaiah 65, is a very important chapter. Let's look at verse 13 now. Therefore, thus says the Lord, my servants shall eat, but you'll be hungry. My servants shall drink, but you'll be thirsty. My servants will rejoice, but you'll be put to shame. My servants will shout joyfully with a glad heart, but you will cry out with a heavy heart, and you shall wail with a broken spirit, and you will leave your name for a curse to my chosen ones. The Lord God will slay you, but my servants will be called by another name, Christians. We'll come back to Isaiah 65. Shortly, but it says clearly that a people who do not yet exist are going to come and praise the Lord, the predominantly Gentile church. Now, of course, there are Jewish Christians. They were called minim by the unbelieving Jews. In the first and second century, they were called haminim by the unbelieving Jews, or they were called Nozrim, uh, followers of the Nazarene. But let's look. Verse 19, he looked down from his holy height. From heaven, the Lord gazed upon the earth to hear the groaning of the prisoner, to set free those who were doomed to death, that men shall tell of the name of the Lord in Zion and his praise in Jerusalem. When the peoples are gathered together, all the kingdoms to serve the Lord. That has not happened from the time this psalm was written. It will happen in the millennial reign of Jesus. According to Isaiah, and according to Zechariah 14, it will happen 
but it has not happened yet. The peoples of all the kingdoms will serve the Lord, according to Zechariah and Isaiah and Psalms and Revelation chapter 20. But back now to the suffering servant. He's weak in my strength, in verse 21, in the way. He shortened my days. Again, this verse 23 harkens back to verse 11. When the shadow shortens, longevity increases. When longevity decreases, the shadow lengthens. When the shadow lengthens, longevity decreases. When the shadow shortens, longevity increases. Okay. Again, this relates to what happened with Hezekiah. The reason Hezekiah, as the king of the Jews, was able to live another 15 years at a time when the average lifespan would have been about 50, 55, is because the lifespan of another king of the Jews was cut short by that amount. In other words, Hezekiah got, well, got life because Jesus, the king of the Jews, got death. There's a relationship there. I would point you to our teaching on, again, the book of Amos, chapter 7 and 8. He weakened my strength in the way, shortened my days. I say, oh Lord, do not take me away in the midst of my days, in the middle of his life. Thy years are throughout all generations. Of all thou found the earth, and the heavens are the work of thy hands. Okay. But look at this. Even they will perish, but thou dost endure. All of them will wear out like a garment, like clothing. Thou wilt change them, and they will be changed. The heavens will be changed. Of old, in verse 25, you found the earth and the heavens. But the heavens and the earth, the earth and the heavens are going to wear out and they will be changed. Look with me, please, to the book of Revelation, chapter 21. Verse 1, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away. No longer any sea. There'll be a new one. The psalm predicts it. Revelation affirms it. Now for a moment, please, let's revert once again, very, very briefly, to Isaiah chapter 65. Verse 17. For behold, I create new heavens and new earth, the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. All the hurts, the miseries, the tragedies, the pain, the death of unsaved loved ones, 
the human dilemma. And the satanic presence in the present heaven, where he accused Job and where he accused the two witnesses, the, the Yeshua, Joshua, the priest, in the book of Zechariah. Satan is not going to have any access to the new heaven. There'll be no memory of him. Psalms, Psalm 102, Psalm 65, Revelation chapter 21, all tell us the same thing. All tell us the same thing. Even they will perish. But what's going to endure? Two things. Two things are going to endure. Even heaven and earth are not going to endure, but there's two things that will. Thou art the same, and thy years will not come to an end. The children of thy servants will continue, and their descendants will be established before thee. The two things that are never going to change, that are never going to disappear, that are never going to wear out, that are never going to go away, the two things that are always going to be there are God and those who truly believe and trust and follow him. This one who had his wrath, whose name became a swear word, without him, we would have gone down the tubes with the rest of it. There's going to be a new one. Not only are we new creations, but God wants to put us in a new heaven and in the millennial reign of Christ, a new earth or a renewed earth, but there'll be a new earth. Remember, behold, I make all things new. Yes, this is a psalm of affliction. And it is a psalm of repentance. It is a psalm of high literary importance in the Vulgate. It is a psalm of desperation and prayer among the rabbis in the synagogue. Psalm of desperation, affliction. It's a psalm to pray for healing. It's a psalm to pray for fertility. It's a psalm of repentance. It's a psalm of affliction. But above all, it is a psalm of certain hope. 